Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, you are worthy, and we are not. Lord, if your word is true, we can believe that you are the only one who can rescue us from ourselves and from our sin. Lord, today we are gathered in your name and we proclaim you as our King and our Savior, who is holy, who was and is and is to come. And we know that you will come again to judge the living and the dead. And that we will be with you in heaven one day if we choose to believe the active choice of accepting you and your gift of salvation. Lord, speak through Dr. Smith today. Let his words be your words. Let your message for us each individually let, us, let our ears hear that today so we may go forward, not to the left and not to the right, but to go forward in what you'd have us do. So we ask all these things in your wonderful name, the name of Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen, and you may be seated. If you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 1, if you would, Colossians chapter 1. We're going to pick back up where we left off last week, Colossians chapter 1. I uh, hope you appreciate uh, Michael Flores and his team. I know that you do, but uh, every song that was sung this morning from Our God Reigns, It Is Well With My Soul, uh, God Is Able, Joyful, Joyful, and this last Revelation song were explicitly about Jesus. You say, well, of course, we're at church, but, but that's not always a given. Uh, there's a brand of, quote, Christian music, without being too negative, where you could, you could be singing to Allah or um, Buddha just as well. It's, it's kind of generic. But we're not singing to God as a mystical figure. We're speaking of singing about the God who revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And the reason why that's significant is because the song we just sang, Revelation song, is a description of what happens in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 4 is this picture of all of these elders and angels and everyone praising God in these concentric circles of worship. Revelation chapter 5 is this exact same scene. There's a throne in heaven, concentric circles worshiping. But the difference in Revelation 5 is that the Lamb is there equal to the Father, Jesus, in the center of that worship. And that's reality. The reality where thousands of people gather around a stadium to watch players play or Olympians compete, that's a fake world that's dissipating and dying and going away. The real world, what is really true, is that Jesus is the center of everything and he alone is to be worshipped. Well, being a Christian is, it's not saying, Jesus, I decided I'm going to make you uh, the center of my life, but it's rather recognizing in a world that doesn't, what God said is true is actually true, and that is that I'm not everything, my success isn't everything, my family isn't everything, doing great in college or high school, that's not everything. Jesus is everything. And last week, we used the analogies, we began uh, talking about Colossians 1 of Copernicus and discovering that the earth was not the center of everything, but that the sun was the center of the universe. 
And we made the statement that there are people who disagreed with him and said, no, that's not right. Um, the earth is the center of the universe. But those people that disagreed with him, that the sun was not the center of the universe, they didn't change it one bit. And uh, We made a, an analogy to us saying, you know what, Jesus, I've thought about it. And I've prayed about it. And God, I've decided that the sun is going to be the center of the universe. God would say, thank you very much. That's really helpful. It is whether you decide it is or not, right? In the same way, I can say, Jesus, I've decided to make you Lord. And God says, well, again, thank you for that. I appreciate uh, that. But Jesus is Lord. He is first place. Whether I acknowledge it or not, he is. Being a Christian is not saying that, God, I've decided to make you something. We can't make God anything. It's agreeing with that he said is true, is actually true. And so this seemingly obscure theological passage tucked away in this little book actually is profoundly important. And so I want you to stay with me this morning as we take some truths that, again, may seem heady and left brain and academic and show that they profoundly change the way I like, the way we live if I'm not everything, but Jesus is everything. Just to set up the context once again before we jump into it, the context is, is that Paul is writing to a church that's in a town named Colossae. They believe that Jesus was among many spirits who they may worship, and Paul has to press the issue and say, look, Jesus isn't just something, Jesus is everything. And in turn, this text forces me to ask myself the same question, is Jesus just something or or is he everything? So last week, all we really had time to get through was this first point, that Jesus is everything because he is the reflection of the Father. Uh, look at it there in Colossians 1, 15a. He is the image of the invisible God. Christ is everything because he alone reflects who the Father is. God the Father is invisible, but that's okay that we can't see him because he's revealed in the visible person of Christ. And the visible person of Christ is revealed to us through his word. So in the word I know Jesus, in Jesus I know the Father. So that's the first thing. And we're going to try to look at those other four things as we can, kind of at a breakneck pace tonight or this morning so that we can get through all of them. But before we do, let's bow and have a word uh, of prayer. Father, we thank you that you've decided to make Christ the center of everything. It's true whether I recognize it or not. Father, I pray that in humble submission, the position of our heart would be that, God, we recognize that what you said is true is true. And we order our lives and individual universes around that reality. Father, we love you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Jesus is everything because of the reflection of the Father. Here is the uh, the second thing. Secondly, Jesus is everything because of his creation of all things, his creation of the world. Uh, look at the rest of verse 15. Look at what it says. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now, we're going to go down to verse 17, but let's stop there. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean, as Jehovah's Witness teach, that God created Jesus. There was a Bethlehem, a time where his physical body came into existence, but Jesus always existed in heaven. The idea of firstborn is not that Jesus is one of God's creation. In fact, it's just the opposite of that. Because Jesus pre-existed, he's greater than creation. There were people that were worshiping creation. There are people today that worship creation. and God is saying, that's nonsensical, because Jesus existed before it. He's better than all of it. 
Look at what he says. Keep reading in verse 16. For by him all things were created. Um, everything in heaven and on earth. That's just about everything. Everything that exists is either in heaven and on earth. And then it describes the things that uh, are in heaven, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. In other words, all these invisible world of angels and demons that we see, they're all created by Jesus. All things are created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. Now, verse 17 is this remarkable verse. I don't really understand it. Don't pretend to. It just says that everything that exists is actually held together by the person of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? I don't know. But if afterwards you want to come up and ask um, Alan what that means, I'll be fine with that. He'd be happy to answer. No idea what that means, but that all the material matter of this universe is held together by the person of Christ. Some people have theorized that the, the atomic structure of the universe, the protons, neutrons, and electrons, and the molecules that scientists don't understand, they understand how they work, they don't understand what sustains them and keeps them together, perhaps it is the power of Christ that's, that's even doing that, keeping all the material world from just flying off into to nothingness. But in order to kind of get a handle of this, I want to show you in verse 17, there are, there are three prepositions that really help us get a hold on it. Look, look at what it says in, back in verse 17. For by him, all things were created. Everything that was created was created by Jesus. This is kind of the point. I have a tendency to get fascinated, enamored with certain things that God has created. But that's nonsensical. Why would I fall in love with the creation before the person who created it was Jesus? Who wasn't watching his father create. He was co-creating with his father. All things are created by Jesus. Look at the second preposition. It's at the end of the verse. All things are created through him. What does that mean? Well, again, I just, I don't know. We don't know what it means. All things are created through him. Other than that, when God created all the world, it was the power of Christ. It was through the power of Christ that God made everything. Some people speculate that Jesus is the word. According to John 1, God used the spoken word to create. So perhaps Jesus was that spoken word that God has created. I don't know, but all things are created through him. But here's a really fabulous truth. Look at this last one. All things are created by Jesus All things are created through Jesus. At the end of verse 17 says, all things are created for Jesus. And that is a phenomenal thought. Everything that relates to the material universe is created for Jesus. That is a revolutionary truth. I know a man, he's a friend of mine who grew up under communism in Romania, went to do his Ph.D. at the University of London in the 1970s. And he said, when I got to the University of London from my little village in Romania, all of a sudden the sexual revolution was taking place and the the skirts were way higher than I'd ever seen in my little Romanian village. And he said, I was just blown away. I didn't know how to relate to all these girls that seemed so open with their body. I, I didn't know how to grasp it, he said. He said, and then I had this thought that struck me one day. Every girl was created like every person for Christ. So I begin to picture that girl at the foot of the cross. And he said, it changed the way I look at women. Now, why did God create women? Some guys would say, for me. The answer to that is, is no, he didn't. 
Uh, you can see a beautiful woman, and you don't have to lust after her, nor do you have to say, um, well, I'm just too spiritual, I'm not going to look. Sure, she's beautiful if you're into beauty and all that, but I've transcended the place of spirituality where I no longer notice, no, that's, it's a pretty woman, just get over it. Uh, and she was created not for you and not for her. Uh, she was created for Jesus. That's why she exists. Um, why do I get to hold a newborn baby? And see a sunrise and sunset. Think about the universe. But we make up all these kind of weird things to try to explain it. Well, we, we just think what a wonderful world. It's, it's the, the mystery of the circle of life. <laughs> That's not why they exist. Um, newborn babies and sunrises and sunsets, they exist for Jesus. By the way, this is a great way to understand creation. Um, I have some friends that love the outdoors. They say, you know, Steve, when I get in a deer stand, I just feel God. Um, when I go out in the woods, I, I feel bugs and, and heat. You know, it just doesn't, doesn't do for me what it does uh, for them. You have other people that worship creation in a different way. You know, they're granola-eating tree huggers or whatever you want to call them. They just, you know, earth is our mother and recycling is right up there with godliness. You know, it's just a, a virtue uh, in our culture. Um, how do we relate to creation? You know, this, this helped me so much. Everything that God created exists for Jesus. So I see a sunrise and sunset. I don't say isn't the earth an incredible place. I say, isn't Jesus incredible? All beauty exists for him. That includes the beauty his creations create. So think about this. This is a weird thing. An unbeliever who rejects Christ can create something beautiful, art, Music, whatever it is, and they're actually preaching about Jesus because he gave them the ability to create that beauty. Now, that's a way to think about creation. So some people I know, I know I grew up at one as a person who thought everything that goes on in church is good, it's spiritual. Everything that goes on outside of church is bad. By the way, this is the exact lie Gnosticism Paul is writing against, that they think there's this division between everything that's spiritual and everything that's in church and everything that's not that's outside of out of church. That's nowhere supported by Scripture. Everything we engage in this world exists for the person of Christ, even if it was created by people who reject him. This is, this is how a believer watches sports. I find it odd when I see a guy throw a ball 60 yards if he's not on my team, it depresses me, upsets my week, at least my afternoon, all these things. What is that? That's showing me that I have so much emotion invested in that, but it's ironic that I don't have that same emotional response in church, isn't it? It's interesting that we can't give away the seats at church, but we'll pay $200 to sit at a seat at a ball game. I thought about that. What if we sold tickets to church? How many people would come, you think? I know how it worked. The back row seats... Those are the $200 seats, right? <laughs> and these are free up here is how it works. That's just the difference between that and a concert. Now, now, why is that? Well, how do I respond to that? Well, I could say, well, sure, Steve, I, um, I'm over here. I just believe that all uh, spiritual things take place in church. So I don't get into athletics or music. You can go ahead, you, you uh, pagan unbeliever, if you want to do that. But I'm, I'm too spiritual to watch sports. And I, don't, I don't believe that, nor do I believe that I should invest all my life in this team and all this stuff so the whole week and life is upset and wrapped around that. Both of those are false extremes. 
The right way is to say, I appreciate that in its context. Isn't it amazing that guy can throw that ball? Jesus is incredible because he gave him the ability to do that. And that way I can engage all of the culture and filter it on how much does it engage Christ. This is the issue. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood. If you have tickets to, you know, season tickets to the Rangers or Mavericks or Cowboys, um, I like you and I want to be your be your friend. So I'm just <laughs> I'm just kidding, but but not really. I really I really do want to be your friend. Right, let's let's look at the third thing. Look at verse uh, 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Then in everything, he might be preeminent. What it's saying is, Christ is everything because he's the only one that's the reflection of the Father. Christ is everything because of his relationship to creation, creation of the world. But, but thirdly, Christ is everything because by his resurrection, he won the right to rule the church. Look back at what it says, verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. Why? The firstborn from the dead. When we come to Christ... Christ raised us spiritually from the dead. We're dead spiritually. He gives us life. Extreme difference between a believer and an, and an unbeliever. And although he gives us spiritual life, long before that, Christ physically rose from the dead. So you notice that word firstborn there, the same as verse 16. The logic is the same. Christ was the firstborn. He existed before all of creation, so therefore he rules it. And Christ is the first one of us who has risen from the dead, so therefore he rules the church. Now, this can be a controversial issue uh, in the church today. Who is it that rules the church? Who is it that runs the church? Some people say, what's the, the pastor? He's the CEO. He runs the church. Some people say, no, uh, you don't understand. The, the deacons run the church. They're the ones who run the church. And some people say, well, no, you're not a, a Baptist. It's the deacon's wives who run the church. They're the ones who administrate it. Um, but none of those things are true. Jesus is the only one who physically rose from the dead the first and stayed alive. Therefore, he is the only one who won the right to rule the church. Now, that sounds very spiritual. Jesus runs our church. Who's the head of the church? We'll have an org chart and Jesus is right there at the top. Jesus runs our church. But what does that mean? That actually has a very practical expression. And I want to show you what that means. We're going to come back to Colossians. But look at John 16, if you would. John 16 in verse 12, John 16 and verse 12, this is a significant passage of scripture because Jesus is about to die, rise again, and be ascended back up into the Father. The disciples whom Jesus had gathered together, a, a small band of three in his inner circle, a band of twelve, a little, a little looser circle. And then out beyond that, there were outlying people called disciples who were followers of Christ. And Jesus explaining to them about to go away and they're wondering, how are we going to build our life without Jesus? Because all of our life and existence was around him. And here's what he said. Look at chapter 16 and verse 12. I still have many things to say to you. Well, good. But you cannot bear them now. That's, that's not good. I've got a lot more I want to tell you. And Jesus told them some incredible things. And so to hear him say, I've got more, would be in a, a phenomenal thought. But he's saying, you, you couldn't stand to hear it. So what is he going to do? Well. Look at verse 13. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So the Holy Spirit would later come, Acts chapter 2. And when the Holy Spirit came, just as he is now, he leads us into all the truth. 
Look at this. Here's how we know he's speaking true. The rest of verse 13. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare to you all that the father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare to you. So so kind of an overwhelming thought, but God has delivered a message to Jesus for them. Jesus delivered it to his disciples, but Jesus said, I'm going away. But it's okay that I'm going away because the Holy Spirit is going to teach you everything you need to know about me. Now, that's an incredible thought. Everything I need to know about God, the Holy Spirit is going to teach us, which begs the question, how? Do we need to light some candles in the woods or something or get in a dark closet and squint our eyes really tight and the Holy Spirit will just reveal something to us? Or is it for the spiritually elite? What does that mean? The Holy Spirit is going to teach us everything Jesus wanted to know. It's, It's very simple. Jesus is explained in the first four books of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the life of Christ. You know what follows next? The book of Acts, which is the life of the church. Then all that goes away. And then what you have next, Romans through Revelation, is kind of an explanation, a commentary on the first four books. In other words, they explain what Christ further meant. When Christ said, I have further things to teach you, what he was talking about, listen carefully, is Romans through Revelation. You say, no, Steve, that's, that's not right. I have red letters in my Bible. And the red ones are when Jesus speaking, and the rest is just Paul or Peter. No, no, no. If you approach it that way, then you can kind of excuse what Paul said. Well, Paul, we can't really trust him on what he said about church or marriage or these things, because he was all locked up and confined in the limits of his time. No, no. When Paul teaches about church or marriage or life or existence or giving, that is Jesus speaking to us. So when you talk about a Jesus church, that means, for example, a church that takes what Paul said in First and Second Timothy and Titus, these books that talk about church, and explicitly follows the way Jesus said a church should be run. That's a, that's a Jesus church. That flows down from everything to the way we run our church, the way we think about evangelism, the way we sing. And by the way, this, again, Colossians 1.18 is why it's so critical that every song we sing ultimately exalts Christ. I'm not singing about God. I'm not in some generic sense. If someone can listen to me sing who's a Jew or a Muslim and agree with everything I'm singing, have I sung a Christian song? This is the idea. We're exalting Christ because Christ leads us to the Father. And a Jesus church is from its worship outward expressions to its internal organizations. It's following how Jesus said it should be done. Now here's the, the fourth thing in verse... 19. Uh, Fourthly, Jesus is everything because of his representation of the Father. His representation of the Father. Look at the verse with me. Go back to Colossians 1. We're going to come back to John 16 at the end. But look at Colossians 1. Look at verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is a, a hard concept to wrap my mind around. What does that mean, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell? Well, here's what some scholars think, and this is actually fascinating. You know, I mentioned that they believe, the Colossians, the error that he's trying to correct, is that they believe there were these individual spirits out in the world that had to be worshipped. You worshipped all of them together, and you were worshipping all the some of these spirits. They wanted to put Jesus and make them one of them, and uh, they called that group of them the pleroma. That's the Greek word. It just means fullness. All the gods and deities there. Now, watch this. 
Paul said for him all the fullness, and in the Greek it's the exact same word, it's pleroma. Maybe what Paul was doing was this brilliant wordplay where he's saying, you know what, you're worshiping all these spirits, but all the fullness you need to know of God is wrapped up in one person, Jesus Christ. He said, that's a great, interesting thought, but uh, we don't have that heresy anymore. We don't have it today. We don't have it in iChurch, but I don't know about you, but I, I struggle with it. I'm going to think, God, here's my money and finances and family, and God, I'm going to pull you in there. So you're going to have a big part of my life. You say, what should we do? Should we exclude all those other things? No, that's the, that's the heresies trying to correct. Everything in my life relates to the center point, Jesus, just like all the planets and the stars and the solar system all rotate around the, the sun. You see, they all have the relationship to each other based on the centrality of the sun. This is the idea. I have Christ as a center and I enjoy my athletics or sports or marriage, but only in the proper perspective, which is the periphery, the margins of my life, not the center. Because money isn't everything. I mean, popular in school isn't everything. Success isn't everything. Jesus is everything. And all those other things are sweeter when they are ordered in the right perspective. Jesus alone is the representation of the Father. He's the fullness and therefore demands my full attention. Here's the last thing, the fifth thing. Finally, Jesus is everything because he is the reconciliation of all things. That's a a big word, but no other way to translate it. Reconciliation. Look at what it says in verse 20. And through him... To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace with the blood of his cross. Now, what does that mean? Christ is the reconciliation. Well, to reconcile uh, just means that you take two people who are at odds with each other and you uh, you have them make it right. Uh, I have a four-year-old daughter and a seven-year-old daughter. So they don't reconcile a lot. In fact, I haven't seen them reconcile at all on their own initiative. But they do a lot of forced reconciliation. Apologize to your sister. Sorry. All right, now give her a hug. That's not reconciliation. That's some forced thing that they're doing to patronize uh, so they don't you know, get punished any further. Um, that's not true reconciliation. It's not the sense of the word here. Reconciliation means you have two people that are that are enemies. Uh, think Hatfield and McCoys and beyond. They're just absolute polar opposites. Um, God is perfect, pure, and holy. I am unholy and I'm impure. God cannot not be good. He is always good. If you'll forgive the double negative, and I cannot not sin. I have this perpetual propensity toward sinfulness and wrong, and we are complete opposites. And I want to say this graciously, but I just want to be honest with you. God is angry as a result of this with you and with me. He's not angry with my sin. Don't you, don't you think God is angry with sin or evil? No, that's some abstract concept. God's angry with me. And God's very clear in his word. As a result of that, he has every intention of punishing me for my sin. Every intention. On my own, there's no way I'm going to be compared to the holiness of God. No, I will be punished for my sin. You say, well, I thought God is loving. Well, he is, but there's a quality that trumps his love, and that's his perfection, his holiness. So God is loving, and he's perfectly loving. He's just, and he's perfectly just. So everything God is is modified by the word perfect. And to say he's perfectly just means that there is no sin of mine, obscure thought, overt deed, that God can overlook. 
You say, well, couldn't God just take the college years? <laughs> couldn't he just take 89 through 94? And just Forget that. The answer is no. If he did that, he would not be God. If he's perfect in his justice, then by very definition of being God, he has to punish those sins. So where are we in all this? Well, here's God who's perfectly angry at my sin, is holy and justified in his anger. Here I am and I'm sinful. I keep on living day to day and I interpret that as my goodness. Well, God must be pleased with me. He hasn't killed me. But actually, that's God's goodness. God is just giving me mercy and mercy and mercy because he wants me to repent. And God has every intention of punishing that. But as God was raising his fist to punish us, Christ stood in the way. And the cross of Christ was not somebody taking his life for him. Rather, it was Jesus willfully looking at the Father and saying, I will willfully and intentionally absorb the wrath you have towards Steve on me. So God punished Jesus, and those who trust in him are now forgiven of those sins. Now watch this. No one goes to heaven because God forgot their sin. Every sin is still punished. They go to heaven because God remembered their sin, but punished Jesus instead of us. Isn't Jesus wonderful? He is the only means by which we could make right to God. Therefore, God is still perfectly loving because he sent Jesus to die. But he's still perfectly just because every sin is punished. It's just that Jesus took the punishment and not me. And heaven is reserved only for those who recognize what Jesus did and throw themselves on their face at his mercy and say, Jesus, would you forgive me? And would you please allow what you did on the cross to be credited toward me? Heaven is not for the Baptists, for the churchgoers. It's for those who throw themselves at the mercy of Christ. If you would, turn to John chapter 16. I want to wrap this up and while looking at this one thought, John chapter 16. And I want you to think about this and its, its implications again. John chapter 16. Look at verse 12. Let's read this again. I still have many things to say to you, but I cannot bear them now. Jesus is saying, I'm leaving. When the Holy Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will not speak on his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Again, this is a seem like a hard-to-understand passage, but it's showing us very explicitly the relationship with God among himself. God is three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three individuals that there's two things you need to know about. They're all equal, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. None is greater than the other. And yet, even though they're perfect in quality, they have unique roles. The Father sent the Son. Jesus said, I'm sending the Spirit. So while they have unique roles, uh, they're all equal. Rather, they have different responsibilities. The Father, the Son is submissive to the Father. The Spirit is submissive to the Son. They have different roles, but they're completely equal. Completely equal. You say, why are you bringing this up? Well, because there are, there are many, many people today who deny this. For example, the Jew would say that Jesus existed. We believe that Jesus existed, but he wasn't the Messiah. He was just a, a good man. 
which is kind of ridiculous because if he wasn't the Messiah, he was not a good man <laughs> because he claimed to be the Messiah. He was a liar or at the very least deranged. Um, Muslims would say the same thing. Jesus is a, was a prophet. He's a good prophet, not bad, uh, but, um, but he's not, not God. Um, the Jehovah's Witness would say, and I was sharing my faith with Jehovah's Witness, and I said, um, what do you believe? And I kind of knew what they believed, but I was trying to get her to, to, uh, to explain it to me. And she says, well, we don't believe in the Trinity. It was the first thing out of her mouth. And what we just explained about God. They don't believe that God the Father and the Holy Spirit are as we understand them. I said, well, do you believe that Jesus existed? Oh, yeah, we believe Jesus existed, but we don't believe he's God. And I said, well, what do you do with all the times in Scripture where Jesus claimed to be God? And she said very honestly, well, I don't, I don't know where that is. You'll have to show me where that is. And uh, first thing I thought of was John 10, where Jesus said, I and the Father are one. It is only a mindless, obscure reading of the, of the Gospels that could come to any other conclusion, but that Jesus was claiming to be God. In John 10, they wanted to kill him because they thought he was God. In John 19, they did kill him because he thought he was God. Um, all the people around him thought he was claiming to be God. This is why Jehovah's Witness are forbidden to read the Bible on their own. They also have accompanying documents that help them interpret, uh, read in that, explain away what Scripture is really teaching. Or the Mormons, for example, who will say that, yeah, Jesus was a God, but he was no more God in the sense that you and I are going to be gods one day in, in heaven. Now, you might be tempted to think that, sure, those people believe that, but is it... Is that really that bad? The answer is yes. Um, for, for two reasons. If Jesus is not God, Jesus is not really everything. If he's not the son of God, then you understand all the rest of this just falls apart. It's, it's the hinge the linchpin to everything else. The second reason is this. If Jesus is not God, then you and I are damned. That means that I go to heaven by myself and say, God, you know, I haven't lived a perfect life, but I've had some good times. I remember that time that I gave extra to you. And God, remember that time that I went to church every Sunday uh, that year? That was a phenomenal. There's got to be a perfect attendance award somewhere in here. I haven't got... Uh, I'm just going to stand before God on my own. You understand, I have no hope outside of Christ. I don't trust 15 minutes of my best righteousness when I stand before God. I'm lost without Him. And truth of the matter is, I would rather, I would rather be a pagan who had never heard of Jesus on the judgment day than be someone who had read the scriptures very carefully but came to the conclusion that what it said wasn't really what it said. No, Jesus is everything, not just something, he's everything. The question is, will I order my existence around what God already said is true? Father God, we are grateful for your love for us. Father, we thank you that we don't have to scramble somewhere in the stratosphere of our life wondering what is real and what is supreme. To what should I give my energies or invest my life, Father? Jesus is everything and we praise you for that truth.
Father, I know there might be some here who have never settled the issue. They've never come in brokenness, humility, repentance. And said, Christ, I throw myself at the mercy to find you. And Lord, I pray that right now would be that time. They would cry out to you for forgiveness and mercy. And there's others who know they're Christians, believe that they're believers. But Father, they have ordered everything else in their life around other realities except Christ. And God, I pray that in a moment, Father, you would change a heart. To realize that work is not everything and marriage isn't everything and life isn't everything, pleasure and everything, a vacation isn't everything, but that, Jesus, you're everything. Father, our hope and our confidence is that that will be true. We pray because of Jesus. Amen.